And we'll turn once again to the portion we were looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. So at first we had attempted to do chapter 7 as a sort of synopsis in one message. And then it turned out that it would not be feasible. Verses 1 through 10, I hope would have been a self-contained unit, which it really is. Only that if we were to continue, we would have been going on this morning. So we're going to finish this afternoon, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. So let's read the, um, these verses once again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the case, the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So we were looking at this uh, person, this personage, and some might say this morning, Melchizedek. And from what we have established so far, he, uh, we want to say we believe, is not a Christophany. Uh, he was an actual person. And the reason being that he was historically located in Salem as king. That is never the case with Christophanes. In in whenever we have a Christophany in scripture, the person representing Christ appears and then soon disappears. Not so the suggestion of Melchizedek. He was king of Salem. We discovered this morning then his identity as to his identity what scripture tells us he was a king and he was a priest then we began looking at the importance of this man Melchizedek and we saw first of all his importance in terms of his person king of righteousness king of peace he was a priest in the midst of an ungodly society an ungodly culture in a time when people were walking contrary to the one true and living God. And then we saw his importance in terms of his position. 
in terms of his position. And then we begin this afternoon by looking at its importance in terms of his portrayal of Christ. The writer establishes the importance of Melchizedek in terms of his portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this of Melchizedek in verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, admittedly, on the surface, this is a rather strange description of a human being, assuming we are correct in our conclusion that Melchizedek was in fact a normal historical person who was but a prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is, on the surface, when we read these words, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, such a statement is true, absolutely true, of none other than the divine pre-incarnate Son of God. What then, the question is, what then does the writer mean by such characterization of Melchizedek? What is he saying? Melchizedek, he is saying, is without father or mother or genealogy in the sense that the record of his descent is not given us in scripture, as is often the case with other prominent people in scripture. And for the writer, because scripture has no record of his parentage or ancestry, from the vantage point of the writer and from the vantage point of the notice, the record of scripture, for all intents and purposes, he had none. What we have to understand here, so it might be a little difficult to grasp for some, but here's the idea. What the writer is doing here hermeneutically, he is looking at the fact that in scripture, Melchizedek, nothing is said of his parentage. He has no record of his father or mother in scripture. There's no record of his ancestor in scripture. And what the writer is doing there hermeneutically is taking that and is figuratively making the point that this man, therefore, does not have beginning of days nor end of days. So what we have really, in my estimation at least, and based on the suggestion of scripture, is that what is said here of Melchizedek does not relate to his person, but to his priesthood, as John Gill, the commentator John Gill, points out. He had no father who was a priest, nor a mother who was from a priestly family. That's the idea we have here in the book of Hebrews. And because there's no record of his beginning or end to his life, it is as though he never was born or died. I hope we get the drift of what he's saying there. So it really, what we have here that is said of him is more a literary function than anything else. He is without father or mother, without genealogy, hence without beginning of days, end of days, from the vantage point of the scriptural record. Hence, figuratively speaking, his priesthood is eternal. And that's the idea we believe is behind that author's statement here, in verse 3. 
And the truth, he infers from this, the fact that the, uh, Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without beginning of days, without end of life. The point he's making then is that unlike the Levitical priests who of necessity had to have descended exclusively from the lineage of Aaron, as we see in Exodus chapter 28, verse 41, Exodus 29, verse 44, Melchizedek did not descend from a priestly line. Now to show how crucial and how important, how critical it was for one to have a genealogical record in order to function as a priest, notice, go back to Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 to 63. And what you'll find there in, in, in Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 to 63, is that after returning from the exile, some men who were purportedly from a priestly family were barred from the priesthood. They were barred from functioning as priests. Why? Because there was no record found of their genealogy to support the fact that they were indeed from a priestly line. That's how critical a genealogy was in ancient Israel. Remember now, Melchizedek was not an Israelite. Of course, the institution of priesthood in Israel was many, many years later, centuries years later. But here was this man from the perspective of scripture without a genealogy, suggesting that he does not have a beginning, he does not have an end, hence he has an eternal priesthood. The writer is establishing the point that this priest, Melchizedek, stands in direct contrast to all the priests of the Levitical system. As well, unlike the patriarchs whose births and deaths are meticulously recorded, as we see, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 3 to 32, that Melchizedek's birth and death are not found in scripture, figuratively signifies that being without beginning of days or end of life, as we said, he being, as it were, endless, did not create a successive line of priests who in turn died and passed on the priesthood. Here again, his priesthood is portrayed as being of an entirely different order. And so we see here a mysterious figure as he is in scripture. Melchizedek appears in scripture as the prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, a prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ, because not only do his designations, king of righteousness and king of peace, find their perfect expression in Christ, but just as he was a holy man, a righteous man in a perverse, moral, immoral, ungodly world, so was our Lord Jesus spotless and sinless as he walked in this sin-cursed, sin-laden world. With no trace of his origins or end of his life, he mirrors who Christ, the ancient of days, according to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, whose goings forth are from of old, from long ago, from days of eternity, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. What scripture figuratively portrays as his endless eternal priesthood ultimately points to Christ's 
perpetual eternal priesthood. And this we know from the end of verse 3, which explicitly tells us that he resembles the Son of God, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We also know that he has to be a prototype of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what made him so very important a figure, because we know from Psalm 110, uh, verse 4, because that predicted, you know, Psalm 110, verse 4 predicts that the Lord Jesus Christ would be a priest after, not after the Aaronic order, but after the order of Melchizedek. In what sense is Christ priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? Once again, Christ's priesthood, similar to that of Melchizedek's priesthood, which is figuratively portrayed in the scriptural record, is eternal. We read there in Psalm 110 and verse 4, the Lord has sworn, and this is said in connection with the Lord Jesus. Here's God the Father, the Lord God, pledging to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, like Melchizedek, he would be a priest, not according to genealogy, but by direct divine appointment. He would be a priest by the sworn declaration of the Lord God himself. Melchizedek did not have priests before him. He did not descend from a line of priests. There is no line of priests after him. Melchizedek's priesthood stands unique. So it is our Lord Jesus Christ's priesthood is unique in the sense that he did not have priests before him, priests like him or priests after him. He stands in a class by himself like this king priest, Melchizedek. Now, fourthly, the writer of the Hebrews establishes the importance of Melchizedek, not only in terms of his position, in terms of his portrayal of Christ, in terms of his person, but he establishes the importance of Melchizedek as seen in his preeminence over Abraham. He shows the importance of Melchizedek in terms of his importance over Abraham, verses 4 through 7. And this is very important because remember, as we said last week, why did the writer single out Abraham? Because Abraham, in the minds of the Jews, in the minds of the Jewish nation, was the patriarch, the very symbol of what it meant to have faith in God. Abraham, we would say, was the paragon of that individual who knew how to trust God and was accounted righteous by God. And here's what the writer does as he speaks of Melchizedek in relation to Abraham. Here's what he says. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. You know the account back in Genesis chapter 14, after the battle against the confederate kings. Melchizedek shows up with bread and wine and blesses him in the name of God most high. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything that he possessed. The writer says here, see how great this man is. And by the way, notice how every time he refers to Melchizedek is not in the past tense. It's in the present tense. See how great he is? 
This Melchizedek is king of Salem. Again, why is he doing that? Because he's underscoring the, eterna the eternality of his priesthood, the fact that his priesthood is perpetual. But keep in mind what we are saying here. It is eternal and perpetual only from the vantage point of the scriptural record. So he is of such, figuratively speaking. So he begins to demonstrate the preeminence over Abraham. He says, look at him. Look at Melchizedek. Behold this man. Look how great he was. Listen, Abraham, it's as though the writer is saying, Abraham, who you hold in, in such high esteem. Listen, this man is greater than Abraham. Abraham paid him tithes. Under the old covenant, the Israelites, as you know, were required to give 10% of their resources to the Levites. And yet the writer is making the point here that Abraham gave 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, verses 2 and 4, despite the fact that Melchizedek was not a Levite. And the fact that Melchizedek not only received tithes, from Abraham, but blessed him, the one who had the promises of God, indicates that he stands superior to Abraham. Now, we have to take that at face value because in the mind of the writer, the very fact that Abraham pays tithes to him and Melchizedek blesses him, in the mind of the writer and in the biblical mindset, Melchizedek would therefore stand superior to Abraham. Now, here's what we must not do, or what we must not extrapolate from this. We must not extrapolate that the pastor or the pastors are greater because they bless and pray for the people. No, no, no. As far as the writer is concerned, and based in, uh, on, the, on the cultural and spiritual milieu of the time, Melchizedek would be considered greater than Abraham. Now, in verses 9 and 10, the author draws the logical conclusion that in a manner of speaking, and watch his argumentation, Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. And as much as Levi was still in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek met him, no, Levi was not yet born. And yet what the writer is seeing here, and watch the line of his argument, because he's going to make the point that not only is Abraham, in a sense, inferior to Melchizedek, not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but Melchizedek is even greater than the Levites, the Levitical priests. point is that Abraham is greater than Levi since Abraham is Levi's ancestor and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham since Abraham paid tithes to him so Melchizedek is greater than Levi. In verse 8 we then find this interesting statement. In the one case tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And the expression, tithes are received by mortal men, is translated literally in the Greek, dying men receive tithes. He is referring there to the Levitical priests who in the course of time all passed 
through death. And by contrast, notice what he does there, the B part of verse 8. He says, in the other case, what is he referring to now? Melchizedek, who for all intents and purpose abides forever, has an eternal priesthood, has a priesthood of a different order. He says, in the other case, tithes are received by one of whom it is testified. And here comes the present tense again, not the past tense. He lives. He's talking about Melchizedek. Again, what we are to understand by the statement of verse 18, and we keep saying this from the vantage point of the right of the Hebrews, because scripture has no record of Melchizedek's death. Scripture in this way figuratively testifies that he continues to live. But the point here is this. Abraham paid tithes to him. Therefore, he's greater than Abraham. And Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Therefore, by virtue of that, Melchizedek stands superior to the Levitical priests. F.F. Bruce interprets then verse 8 as follows. The tithe which Abraham gave to Melchizedek was received by the one who, as far as the record goes of scripture, indicates has no end of life. Here again, the truth of his perpetual superior priesthood over that of the Levitical priesthood. And continuing with this emphasis on the perpetual priesthood of Christ, in verses 9 and 10, the author draws the conclusion that in a manner of speaking, Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abram inasmuch as Levi was still in the loins of Abram when Melchizedek met him. So you get the drift here. Listen. The Levitical priest of whom command was given to the people of Israel that they were to pay tithes to them. Listen. He's saying the Levitical priests in the loins of Abraham were paying tithes to Melchizedek. Consequently, because Abraham is greater than Levi, Abram being his ancestor, and because Melchizedek is greater than Abram, since Abram paid tithes to him and blessed him, Melchizedek is therefore greater than Levi. Amazing piece of reasoning. And we could virtually say that Melchizedek is greater than Levi in as much as he was getting priestly honors even before Levi was born. Of course, the ultimate point to which the author will get, in which he, he will emphasize this point, is this that because Melchizedek's priesthood surpasses that of the Levitical priesthood, and because Melchizedek is portrayed as a prototype of the Lord Jesus resembling the Son of God, here it comes. The priesthood of our Lord Jesus is infinitely greater and hence surpassingly more effective than that of Melchizedek's. The Levitical priests die. In fact, later on in this chapter, he's going to go on to say, by reason of death, they were not able to continue. They die. But here's a point about the Lord Jesus standing in the tradition of Melchizedek being after the order of Melchizedek is that Jesus has been made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood that is of far greater importance 
for our redemption. So let's wrap this up with some observation that we have application. And it's very simple. That in contrast to the Levitical priests, Christ's priesthood is of a different kind of a, and of a different order. When we talk about Christ, our high priest, we can't put him in a class with Aaron. We can't put him in a class with the Levitical priests. We can't even, in a sense, equate him with Melchizedek. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he stands superior to Melchizedek because he actually lives forever. And if we were to jump ahead of ourselves, the writer is going to say in verse 25, because he abides forever, he is therefore able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for sins. Let me say this. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our High Priest, is alive. All the various world figures, world religions, the figures of the various world religions are in their grave. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he died, he rose again from the dead, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty and I, having made purification for sins once and for all. We have in him a great almighty high priest and savior. His is an eternal priesthood, a priesthood that's derived not from descent, but by divine appointment. How did he become a priest? He became a priest because he was designated as such by the Lord God. You're a priest. For, in fact, what did God do in making him a priest? God confirmed him as a priest with a sworn declaration. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just as Melchizedek stands alone, having no ties to either a priest before him or after him, so Christ is not connected to any priest before or after him. Hence, he stands unique in his priesthood. This is a priesthood which passes not from one to another because he lives forever as a high priest. All of this is to say that as our great high priest, Christ stands way superior. He stands way superior. It is of vastly greater importance than the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. This underscores the fact that the Levitical priesthood was but a temporary and inadequate provision to address the, the nature of sin. And you can see why the writer of the Hebrews is so insistent that, look, he's saying to his readers, if you return to Judaism, if you return to the temple, if you return to the sacrifices and rituals of the Old Testament, that, as it were, is a slap in the face of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And I'm going to close with this statement, and I don't mean to be offensive. But let me say this, my friends, when we have systems of religion today that sets up priesthood, 
and claim to be able to forgive sins. Let me say this, that that is rank blasphemy. Based on the suggestion of the word of God, that is a religion of hell. I don't mean to be mean. Listen, it is the truth. If what Jesus did is true, if who Jesus is, if Jesus is who he says he is, and we know that he is based on the declaration of the word of God, then any attempt to set up some kind of priesthood where people go and confess their sins and receive forgiveness of sins and get hope of eternal life is a slap in the face of the God and his marvelous grace in Christ. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uses stronger language than I do. He says to do that is to do despite to the spirit of grace and to count the blood of Jesus Christ as an unholy thing. Listen, the Bible makes it clear. When Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, after he had by himself what purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and I, connoting what? The fact that the work of redemption, the work of the attending to the problem of sin has been taken care of once and forever by his own person and by his own provisions, namely his precious blood. And that being the case, any attempt to return to the priestly system of Judaism is most outrageous and unthinkable. You begin to see then, he go back to Hebrews chapter 6, why the author spoke in such strong language. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened. Enlightened concerning what? Concerning who Jesus is. Concerning his priesthood. It is impossible for those who are once enlightened about those things that they should fall away, that is, fall away completely, return to other stuff, away from Christ. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's not saying that a person cannot, in a moment of weakness, slip. What he's talking about there is a decided, definitive turning away from the truth concerning who Jesus is and to go back to weak, miserable, beggarly elements. I trust that as we go through these studies and particularly as we will delve further into chapter 7, as we will look at this matter of Christ's priesthood, the sufficiency of his saving grace that more and more will come into an appreciation of him, a love for him. May these things be so in our hearts and lives, for his name's sake. Amen.